That was pretty cool. Oh, my. Oh, hi. I forgot you were out there for a minute. Okay. Um, so, hey, my name is Steve, Steve Bateman, and uh, I do have the privilege of being a member here at Living Water Community Church. Um, they give me the honor of, every once in a while, being able to bring God's Word to you, and it is a high honor. Um, you know, Patrick said I was, I was, I'm a pastor, and I did. I had the great privilege of serving as a pastor in South Carolina before we moved back up here about four years ago. And, um, you know, it's interesting when you are, are pastoring and you're preaching every week, you, you kind of get into a rhythm, you almost actually even feel like you know what you're doing. And, um, uh, but when that stops and you find yourself preaching every once in a while, um, it's not as easy in some respects. You get a little nervous. You begin wondering about, you know, not only all the work that I've done, but am I going to come across in a way that you'll think I'm an okay kind of guy, <laughs> you know? Um, like, even this morning, I got up and I thought, I'm going to wear jeans. And I thought, but it's Sunday, you can't wear jeans. And it's like, okay, I'm going to wear jeans and wear a jacket, and that'll be cool enough, you know? It's, it's, it's hard. It's hard. You want to honor God, and at the same time, I realize you're looking at me. And so it con I was convicted by that last night before I preached, and it's like, Steve, it's really not about you, <laughs> right? And so I, 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 I said, it's got to be about the people that you're serving. But how can I get into my mind you and, and kind of what you're facing in the life? So I went to the prayer requests that you bring to the church that we, we pray about, and um, I wanted to kind of get a sense of what's going on so that I could be a bit more sensitive and, you know, to, to, to making it about something else other than me, right? So here's, here's just a snippet of what I found on that prayer list. Please pray for these things, healing from a gunshot wound, for God to work some sort of miracle in my life. I'm suffering with anxiety and delusions. Please pray over the loss that my family has experienced. We need peace. There's a surgery coming up. Our home might, we might be able to close on it soon. I'm having heart problems. My sister recovering from surgery. Peace for my grandmother's, after my grandmother's rather recent passing. Direction and peace. Our family on the loss of my mother. God's direction, provision, incarceration, and coming to terms with my divorce. Life is hard. It really, truly is. And this is your story. The trials, the challenges that we face, when you're not alone, your neighbors are going through the very same thing. And, and so now I begin thinking in terms of I pray that the Lord brings forward something that, that He, by His grace, touches you in that deep place of need and brings a bit of healing. That perhaps you will even see those trials and circumstances not in the light of, God, why did you visit this upon me? But rather, what's he have for you in it? Because I, I believe it is the goodness of God that allows those trials to take place. I believe that God wants something bigger and better for us, and oftentimes we shrink back from it because we're afraid of what might happen if we do the right thing. And our fear paralyzes us. And we can't live that life we were meant to live. 
So we have to be able to look at our trials through a different lens. And that's what I hope you'll be able to do as we, uh, we go into the Word today. Okay? So what I'm going to do is I am in the book of Luke 22, and uh, the chapter 22, rather. We've been here for a long time, and I have the opportunity to preach out of the, the verses which begin in uh, verse 24 and following down through 71. What you're going to find is, is that by the time we deal with Peter's denial and the, the trial of Jesus, I'm going to focus solely on the trial or the, the, the denial that Peter um, was guilty of, if you will, because there's just too much in there to try to get in within the time frame that we have. So next week, perhaps, whoever is preaching can pick that up and they can make the very best of it. But what I want to do is get us into the setting. I want us to kind of get a flavor for what's happening here. So I'm going to start back a little bit further with regard to it's Wednesday night before the Passover. Okay. And Judas has gone to the Jewish council and said, look, I'm willing to betray Jesus, right? Great, we'll pay you 30 pieces of silver. It's a done deal. Now, it's going to be dark, he says to them. So when we get to that place where I know he's going to be, watch who I give a kiss to. That's the one you want to arrest. And the following day, right, as we go into Thursday, we're in the upper room. There's the, 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 the Lord's Supper. And you know, Jesus is talking about the bread and the wine and how he's giving these things over and so on and so forth. And then he gets to a particular passage, which is interesting. What he says to the disciples, he says, But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes that as has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. And then in my Bible, it has a really big heading that says, who is the greatest? Because a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And I tried to think to myself, how did that transition happen? Right? How do we go from somebody's going to betray me to a debate over who's the greatest disciple? So bear with me in my imaginations, because I think this is how it went. So suddenly there's the idea of who could possibly betray Jesus. And Peter says something first, because Peter always goes first, right? Pastor Mike said he's the king of impulse, right? He says, it's not me, because where were you guys, huh? When I was out walking on the water, y'all were in the boat, right? There's no way I'm going to betray him. And Andrew looks at his brother and says, you wouldn't even know if I didn't introduce you, right? Couldn't be me. And old James and John, the other brother team in the mix, you know, James says, yeah, it's not me. Couldn't be me, right? Because you guys are no sons of thunder, right? And John says, well, you know, it's not me. I'm greater than all of you. I, I'm, I'm the one that even when I write about this later, I'm going to say the one that he loved, right? <laughs> It's interesting, isn't it, how we can go from Jesus saying something that should have been a whole different discussion, and yet suddenly we're debating on who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? Well, you have to have that in mind as you continue on with Thursday evening and what begins to transpire, because right after that, right after that in verse 31, Jesus is talking to Peter, and he says, Simon, Simon, behold... Satan demanded to have you all, that he might sift you 
like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times that you know me. I went with a different version than the ESV, mostly because I wanted you to see that Jesus is talking in terms of Satan has asked to sift all of you as disciples. All of you. Right? He used the plural, right? But he looks Peter in the eye and he said, but I prayed for you that your faith might not fail. But it's going to, right? He says, he says, when you have turned back, which means in some respects he's going to turn away. When you have turned back, Strengthen your brothers. But we have Peter here with regard to, I'm not quite sure I even heard what you said, but I'm going to tell you this, Jesus, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus says, no, you're really going to deny me. You're going to do it three times before the cock crows. There's two things that are in this that I, I, I don't want you to miss. First off, I don't want you to miss that Satan had to ask permission to do this. Right? When we see trials in our lives and we see these challenges that we face and we, we wonder why God is just not moving in such a way that He lifts the trial off of us that we can be back to where we long to be, which is just okay. But God uses Satan, allowing him to shake you because there's something better for you on the other side of that experience if by faith you can make it through. And when you do, it's not just about you. Go and strengthen others with what you've learned about the love and the goodness of God and how he ministers to us in the midst of trial. That's the message. That's it. But I'm not done with my sermon. But I want you to get that. Listen for it in Peter's testimony and how it is unpacked in the scriptures. Because we go on there with regard to the evenings and so on and so forth. And Jesus says that, hey, the scripture must be fulfilled. I have to do these things. And then they go into the garden. Jesus tells Peter and the others to stay there while I go and pray. And then in comes Judas with regard to the army of those that are behind him. And they arrest Jesus and they drag him into the courts. And here we go with regard to what I want to share with you. So if you'll stand with me, we'll be reading from verse 54 down through till 62. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. And Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, 
the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of our Lord. And how he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. You may be seated. What I want to take us through is this idea of what Peter's problem was, how he dealt with that problem, and how he was determined to work through it regardless. In other words, we're going to talk in terms of Peter's denial, right? Peter's decisions on the heels of that denial, and then is determined to live life in a certain way. All right? But it's not, it's, not, it's not worth going into until we kind of figure out what Peter's problem was. And I would suggest to you his problem was that he was a proud man, that he had pride. That when Jesus said, hey, this is what's happening, he says, no, 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 I will do this. And as soon as you hear someone saying, I that's who they're thinking of. In our small group this past week, in our discussions, we went into the idea of that which is in Luke that talks in terms of the rich ruler. Do you remember the story? Right? It's pretty novel. The rich ruler sees Jesus and he comes to him and he says, Lord, or good teacher is what he says actually, good teacher, what do I need to do? What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus immediately gets into his psyche by saying, why do you call me good? There's only one that's good, and it's God. So immediately a standard is placed much higher than what this guy may have even thought about himself. But then Jesus goes on to say, you know the commands, right? Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not lie, do not steal. And honor your mother and your father. And our young man feels pretty good about himself. He says, I've kept all those since my youth. Jesus says, yeah, but there's still one thing remaining. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And the rich man turns his back on Jesus and bows his head sadly because he was wealthy. What's the problem with pride? suggests at least two things, the first of which is it blinds us to the truth. It blinds us to the truth. We simply can't see adequately because the only person that's important to us is us. And we live our whole lives out of a perspective of what's going on in our lives and how it's affecting us, and as a result, we don't see what's true. Even as I come before you today, you know, and I was teeing it up with that conversation, you don't care how I'm dressed. You really don't. But I think you do, hence I get all wrapped up in myself. Okay? It's how we live our lives. You know, and here in this ruler's position, he's thinking, God, I do want eternal life. I want that. Just tell me how to do it. And Jesus says, here's how you do it. Follow me. He didn't want it. The cost was too high, right? Somehow or another, he wanted to do as many of us do. Can I have a foot in the worldly camp where I got a good bit of money and a good bit of position and a foot in the good camp, the God camp? Jesus says, no. You don't love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You love your money and you love your position and that's your God. Did he know that? Did he believe that? It's the truth. He gave evidence to it. But pride blinds us to the truth. It happens all the time. The scriptures are replete with such instances. You know this in your own life. 
I believe the second thing that pride tends to do with us is it comes along with fear. And the fear has at least two aspects to it. One is, is because I'm so dependent upon how you see me that I'm afraid you're going to see me differently than I want you to. Right? So I don't, I don't want to share anything with you which may, in my opinion, make me appear to be less in your eyes. You know, I have the honor of uh, joining Jim Bauer and leading a men's group here. And um, it's great. I mean, it truly is. We've got about 20 guys on Saturday, and the conversation is rich, and I really, truly believe that we're growing. But I have to confess with you that uh, I have not always been a fan of men's groups. The fact is, I didn't like them, right? I mean, the, the reason was that, um, you know, I kind of imagined them to be a particular way. I, I imagined that... Um, you know, people are getting in there and guys being guys and who they are. They, they're, they're either doing one of two things, neither of which I want to be a part of. They're either woeing and whining about their lives, right? Oh, man, Eagles lost last night. I don't know if I can go on, you know, this kind of thing. <laughs> you know, or, or they're bragging, right? They're bragging. It's like, yeah, man, who are you? I don't know, but I'm a VP of blah, 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 Right? Well, I didn't really want to be around either one of those things. <laughs> I didn't. Um, but, you know, God convicts our souls, and we're part of churches, and we got to do what we got to do, and so on and so forth. And so I remember my worst experience in a men's group. I had, uh, I had been, I'd been a, a, at a pretty reasonable position in my career, and I got fired, right? which is a bit humbling. And uh, so now I'm going to go to a men's group. And we get to the table, and I didn't know anybody around the table, so they thought they would do me a kind act by saying, hey, let's all introduce each other, right? Well, I'm John, and I work at so-and-so, and I'm Bill, and I work at so-and-so, and I'm Harry. And, I, and they got to me, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, no. I'm Steve, and uh, I'm between jobs. <laughs> yeah. I was so afraid that they would think so poorly of me because... I wasn't in my career anymore, right? But what is the root of that? I, it's pride. I was so afraid of what they might think of me. Do we not live there, right? Because you know what? I really thought that who I am was dependent upon my position at work. And by the way, they paid me a reasonable amount of money that I had a pretty nice house. And that's who I was, my stuff. And that's the other component of fear. You know, when you amass whatever it is that you're looking for that gives you that sense of security, that sense of self-worth, that, that sense of whatever it is you're looking for in those territories, when you got it, you begin to get really afraid you're going to lose it. And so you make compromises all over the place with regard to holding on to it. And then a trial comes in where that gets to be shaken and you're thinking, oh Lord God, what will happen to me if I lose my house or I lose my job or I lose my car or I lose my money? Please don't let that happen. I need those things. You're afraid. And that's the evidence of pride. You worked really hard for that. It's yours. You deserve it. How in the world could you live if you lost it? I think much of our problem is the same that the ruler had. We love something more than God. And God in His goodness will do whatever is necessary to shake you from that position. And He does it through trials. He does it through the trials that we experience. 
That was Peter's problem. There, in the midst of having so much pride that he was saying to Jesus, I'm willing to go to prison and to death with you. The next thing he's know, he's saying, I don't even know the guy. He's compromising to protect himself from what likely would happen if he did not. Because he didn't trust God. He wasn't following Jesus. He was doing it at a distance. Don't want to get too close. I might get hurt. We have to be honest with ourselves before the Lord and, and really come to grips with the fact that pride is inherent to who we are. It's our greatest sin. And God, who is good, will do everything in His power to break us of that sin so that we might discover a better good on the other side of it. So Peter's problem was pride. And that showed up in his dialogue with Christ, as I said earlier, with regard to, I am willing to do these things. But Peter lived a life where he was broken, wept bitterly, and then he was ultimately restored in such a way that he could help others. I mean, what do we know about Peter on the other side of his failing? That he came to a place where he had to figure out what's next. What shall I do? You know, I can imagine that after the loss of his leader, who he had, as said earlier, I've given up everything to follow you, what's in store for us, that when Jesus being dead and in the tomb, hope is lost. But then something wonderful happens. The ladies go to the tomb, they discover that it's empty, they get a word from the angel, go and tell Peter and the others, Christ is raised, right? So they go back to the, to the room, they encounter the disciples, they tell the disciples that Christ is raised, and two of them at least get up off their duff and run to the tomb, Peter and John, right? John's a little quicker, he gets there first, but he stops at the tomb, looking in, can't believe what he's seeing. Peter, being impulsive, he just gets John out of the way and goes right into the tomb, and he sees it, and he believes, and his hope is restored. And then, and then we have Peter moving on in, in such a way that, that he, he, he's, at the, he's, he's, in the, he's back fishing, and the other disciples perhaps are there fishing with them, and he encounters a man on the shore who says to him, hey, guys, when you were fishing, how did it go? He said, we didn't catch anything. He says, throw your net over on that side of the boat. And when they do, they draw in a bunch of fish. And John says, it's the Lord. And Peter jumps out of the boat. He's good at this. He jumps out of the boat and he swims to the shore and he comes face to face with Jesus. And Jesus does for him what he does for each of us, even if we fail. He restores them. And he, he says to him, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, you know I love you, Lord. And he says, feed my sheep. Then he says to him again, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, of course, you know I love you. And he says, tend my sheep. And a third time, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, Lord, you know I love you more than anything. He said, Feed my sheep. Here's the interpretation. Peter, I've just restored you. And now that you've turned, strengthen the brothers. Isn't that a wonderful thing? So we have Peter restored. Oh, praise be to God. He's perfect now. He's got it all together. There's no more pride in Peter. He is... No. 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 Because look what happens right on the heels of that conversation. This is so cool. 
right on the heels of the conversation, as Peter and Jesus are walking, Peter, out of the corner of his eyes, sees something. And he turned and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him. Who's that? John. The one who also leaned back against him during supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what's that to you? You follow me. You see what Peter's problem is? You know, he's walking along and he looks back over and says, oh, there's John again, right? I remember that argument we had about who's the greatest. And yeah, he runs faster than me and he's loved by Jesus. And oh my gosh, what about him? I care about him compared to me. Jesus says, what is wrong with you? What do you care about? If I have him stay until I return, what's it to you? I'm telling you, follow me. And that's, Peter still struggles, but he's been restored. And that's your life and mine. I struggle with pride. You struggle with pride. But we don't get paralyzed in our struggle. We don't stand back from the trial, do we? We've got to somehow face it and allow the Lord to continue to minister to us in it. Peter still struggled. But thank goodness Jesus said something to him that now he's okay. Now he's got it. No, still not yet. Right? Because you fast forward a few years and there's the church at Antioch. Right? And Peter's doing a really good job with regard to ministering to the Gentiles and so on and so forth. But Paul has a problem with Peter. And here's what he says. But when Cephas, which is Peter in Paul writing, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And so going on. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when, he saw, when I saw rather that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, eating Gentile foods and so on, and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like a Jew? If you're not doing it, why would you force them to? But look at the key words that are happening in poor Peter's life. Right? One, he was afraid. He was afraid of the, of the, the, the Jews, which are sort of right-wing in their thinking, and only in the sense that you can be a Christian, but you've got to hold on to the Jewish traditions. Right? So now if they're coming, he doesn't want them to be seen in such a way that he ignored that rule, so he backed away. He was afraid of what people would think. And Paul says, I see that Peter was not living out the truth of the gospel. He was blinded by it. By what? By his pride. It's still there. It's still there. You know, at this point, if you're just left with that story, you would wonder to yourself, what's going on with Peter? He should just stop doing anything. Seems like every time he turns around, he's screwing up. But that's not true. That's not true. The first 13 chapters of the book of Acts tell us how wonderful the work of Peter is. He was a leader. He was a leader. And you can even see that in this passage. But his hypocrisy led to the hypocrisy of others. But if he's doing the right thing, it should also lead to the right thing in the lives of others. That's what leadership's about, right? 
And those first 13 chapters show us a leader who loved the Lord. I mean, after, after the, the resurrection and they come back together, it was Peter that says, look, there's only 11 of us and we need, we need a 12. You know, it was Peter who walked along and, and, and preached the sermon, this wonderful sermon at Pentecost, when everybody sort of heard in their own languages what was happening. It was Peter that was there in the healing of a beggar, which subsequently led to his inquisition before the Jewish council and the arrest of all of the apostles, saying, look, no longer will you go out and preach in this name of Jesus. We forbid you. And it was he who said, what, will she obey you or God? See a transition happening here, or at least a tension in his life? It was Peter then that was criticized by the, by the same group of people after they discovered that he was eating a meal with Cornelius and the other Gentiles in Acts 10. Right? And he tells in the story about how God laid down a blanket while he was dreaming with all these unclean things in it, telling Peter to eat. And Peter said, I will not. I have never, ever you know, eaten anything unclean. And, he, and, and the Lord says, whatever I call clean is clean. Referring to the Gentiles. And then it's Peter who is faced with an unusually familiar circumstance. Whereas we encroach upon Passover there at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Herod, the king, decides to kill James, the brother of John. And he saw that it pleased the Jews. So he has Peter arrested and put in prison with the intent of bringing Peter out after Passover to do the same. Put yourself in Peter's position. Is this not very reflective of the greatest fear you had when you denied Christ three times? And boom, there it is. Faced with it. And then something wonderful happens. Something that he would never have imagined. Neither you nor I in the midst of a trial. God moves in a miraculous way. And an angel comes and says, Peter, get up. Get your clothes on. We're getting out of here. And the chains are unshackled. And Peter thinks he's in a dream because it's so weird and unusual. And the next thing you know, he's outside and he says, I'm free. It wasn't a dream. God rescued me. So he runs to go and strengthen the brothers. He goes and wants to tell them what God has done to share this great news. And he knocks on the gate and the woman hears his voice and she says, it's Peter. Now, she should have opened the door, but instead she runs back in the room and says, Peter's out there. Peter's out there. He's still standing at the door kind of wondering what's next. But the rest of the guys are saying, it's not Peter, it's his ghost. It can't be Peter. We know Peter's dead. He should be dead. He was in... No, it's really him. And he comes in and he tells them what the angel had said to him. The Lord said, go and tell James and the others, right, that you're okay. Do you see what I'm trying to convey to you? Who would have imagined that could have possibly happened? The old Peter would have done the very thing the old Peter did. I'm not going through that trial. There's nothing good that's going to happen in it. I'm just going to try to go around it. I'm, I'm no way am I facing it head on. He didn't have a choice this time, and look what God did. It was a story that was brought to the others to encourage them, to strengthen them, not in what Peter could do, but what God does in our midst in the trials. And I'm going to tell you something. You know why this men's group's good now? 
I hate to circle back on it. It's because that's what I'm experiencing in it. There's not a perfect one in the group. <laughs> There's not. But we are encouraging one another of what the story of God is doing in our lives. And it's inspiring each of us to go ahead and face the trial. To go ahead and do it. Because there's something good for you in it. We know that from the testimony of others and the wonder of the scripture that tells us it's true. Peter lived that out. He was human. He struggled with pride. And, you know, we, we continue to have these challenges because it's part of our human experience. To err is human. It's real. But God in his kindness and his love for you will continue the work that he began in you and bring it through all the way to completion where you will be perfect. Perfect in the sense that the struggles and the sin that you deal with will ultimately and gradually be purged. We just got to want that like he wants it. See, that was Peter's determination on the other side of all of this. You know, as we progress toward Peter's later writings, we begin to see a new Peter that upon reflecting over his life, things have changed in how he saw life. Let me just share with you there very quickly as we go through those so you perhaps can see it as, as, as I do and perhaps as you would want it applied in your own life. I think first, one of the great things that happened in, God, in Peter's life was that a new desire was awakened within him. Here's how he writes. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Do you see what he's saying? Prior to Christ, we live in a place where all we're thinking about is us and our flesh. But he's saying you need to think differently. You need to think like Christ did. With regard to the flesh is nothing. It's not where my passions are. It's not where my hope is. It's not what my values are. Rather, I need to do everything I can to, as someone has said, mortify the flesh. To cease from sin. That every time it's bubbled up in trials, I have to look for God to move in such a way that I don't commit the sin, the temptation, that's there, right? Instead, I need to live my life in a place where the flesh is no longer having control over me, nor human passions, but I live for the will of God. That's all I want. I want His will. I want what He wants. I no longer want what I want. I'm willing to give up whatever I want because of what He wants. For me and for you and for us as we trust Jesus Christ with our lives. Not just with our finances, not just with our position, but with our very being. We give it all up and surrender it to Him. Because He has a better purpose for it than you have for you. Peter exchanged what was important to him. It was no longer about him, but it was all about the will of God. I think another thing that Peter did was uh, he dismissed this idea of it's all about my glory, right? Look what he says here in, uh, again in the fourth. He said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. 
but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. We hear this often. It's been said by many. What is the sole purpose of man? The sole purpose of man is to glorify God. And so we pray it, we say it, we want it, we want God to be glorified. And this is how it happens. Don't be surprised when you encounter a trial, like it's strange, right? If you want to be like Christ, you have to kind of live like him. Did he not suffer? You have to be willing to suffer, right? Don't be surprised, right? Let's, but, but rejoice in that you get to experience a bit of what Christ experienced so that you know him more. See, he came and he was like us in every way, except for sin. He dealt with these things. He was challenged by these things. He did it willingly for the joy that was set before him, right? You have to be there too. Don't be surprised when God allows you the opportunity for that to happen by bringing a trial into your life, right? Because when you get through it, right, and his glory is revealed through that, even if it goes poorly for you and people think less of you and insult you for the name of Christ, which is what drove you to do that, you're blessed because his glory resides on you. All of creation glorifies God. We struggle with it because we don't want to. But this passage and this method of approach is how you do it. You just are created to live this way, and when it's happening, God's glory is revealed through you. It rests upon you. Peter exchanged what many of us are living our lives for, a sense of personal glory, that people might see us well or think better of us and so on and so forth. That is nothing. But God's glory on you, that's, that's something. I think Peter also got a grip on the reality of our wealth and Really, is this where our treasures are? Look how he says here in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What he's essentially saying is what Jesus said earlier, where your heart is, or where your treasure is rather, that's where your heart is. And your heart needs to be in heaven. And you need to look at this life from perspective of that's where my treasure is. I'm just passing through here. That I have a treasure in store for me in heaven that is kept there for me. It's mine. I am not going to pursue earthly riches, right? They perish. You don't even get to take them with you. But that, that's yours forever. And I am a rich man because of what's in store for me on the other side of this life. And you know what? It's not based upon much of what I do because he goes on to say that by God's power, you are being guarded, that is kept, through faith for that very thing. Isn't that cool? There's a promise of a treasure and the promise of a faithful father that says, I got you. And it's a sealed deal. Right? Would you exchange that for a bit more money? 
right? I hope not. That was Peter's idea. So I get this. I understand this. I am no longer going after earthly rich or position or power or all these things. My rewards are in heaven, which is where my home is. And then there's this ultimate fulfillment that Peter recognized later in life. That all the things that we run for in a sense of being praised and honored and so on were not to be had in this world, but only in the next. As he goes on to say this, in the promises that I just told you about and the treasure and everything else, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold, which perishes though is tested by the fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you do have not seen him, you love him. And though, though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. When Peter writes and says, this faith, this genuine faith, which has been refined and strengthened through the fires of trial... When we make it through and on the other side of it, it results in something for you and for me. Praise and glory and honor. Not from you to me, but from Him to us. And who would not want to hear their Savior and Creator say, Well done, good and faithful servant. we got to live for that. That has to be the end game. And we need to make every decision we make today in light of wanting that more than anything. And Peter says, rejoice when you encounter a trial because it's strengthened in the very thing that you need to ensure that you can continue along that path. Strengthening your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ, your trust in the faithfulness of God, even when you slip, even when you fall. Not that we want to live in the slipping and the falling, but the reality of it is when we do that, there is grace sufficient to cover the sin. And we just got to keep on going. We got to keep on going. I guess my encouragement to you is, is along the lines of don't shrink back from the trials. Recognize them for what they are. They are meant for your good. Don't extrapolate beyond the what will happen if I do. Just do what God commands you to do. And watch Him move. Because there's what the story is that you share with others of his goodness to you and how they can depend upon that same goodness because he loves them as he loves you. When I titled this thing, I uh, pulled it out of the air and then corrupted it. You know, to err is human, to be forgiven is divine, to be forgiven. Because everything I've shared with you truly applies to those who have given their lives to Jesus Christ. That they know that whatever they were doing in life without Him wasn't working for them. That they've encountered trials and struggles and they've done their very best to get around them, get through them, manipulate people in such a way that perhaps it'll be better for them and it's just not working. So at some point they said, God, forgive me. And for no, no more do I live for myself, but I simply want to live for you. I don't know what's happened on the other side of that decision, but I trust you in it. See, what happens there in that prayer, as the movement of God happens, the Holy Spirit invades you and changes you out to be a new creature in Christ. 
And Peter wrote about that as well. He says that in some way, shape, or form, we get to participate in a divine nature. See, he says to, to, his, to his audience, he says, His, God's divine power, has given you everything you need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who has called us by His own glory and goodness. That through, through these we receive many great and precious promises that through them you and I may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world which is caused by evil desires. To err truly is human. We make mistakes, but we don't live in those mistakes. By the power of God who is in us as a result of our giving our lives over to Him and participating in that divine nature, we can overcome them just like Peter did and do great things in the midst of trials and then strengthen those around us with the stories that come from it. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and I would just beg you not to leave this place without at least making that confession and asking Him to take over and then trust Him with what He shares with you. And even if you do, keep going. Don't quit. Hit those trials head on and watch what God does. Let me pray for you. Father, I do pray and I ask your blessings upon this gathering. I pray, God, that by your Holy Spirit, you indeed speak to each of us in ways in which we need to hear from you. And God, if we hear you say to us, press on, then I pray that by your same Holy Spirit, you would empower us to do that. Trusting in you and letting the chips fall wherever they may on the other side of the decision that's trusting. So that we might see the glory of God who does wonderful things for his children that we might really have our faith built in such a way that we continue to take steps, steps of faith, walking by faith, and no longer walking by what we see and fearing the outcomes. And I ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing one last song together? Amen.